the Bain Free Radio Hour. On this week's podcast, we examine the exploits of technologically enhanced Cobra warriors caught in a web of strategy and intrigue between the dominion of man and its alien enemy. Plus, part 43 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm contributing editor Gray Reinhardt, sitting in for Bain editor Tony Daniel. New York Times best-selling author and Hugo Award winner Timothy Zahn joins us to talk about Cobra Outlaw, the second book in the Cobra Rebellion series, the third series of Cobra books published by Bain. And we also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. And now, here's the news. Renowned science fiction author Jerry Purnell, who suffered a stroke in December, has recovered enough that he was able to attend last week's meeting of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. We congratulate him and wish him a continued speedy recovery. Turning our eye to this week in history, the last week of January has seen some remarkable findings in astronomy, at least according to Wikipedia. On the 31st of January in 1862, Alvin Graham Clark discovered the companion star to the dog star Sirius, which is the brightest star in our night sky. The companion star he discovered is a white dwarf, known officially as Sirius B and unofficially as the Pup. The 31st of January turns out to be a red-letter day for astronomy twice more. In 1958, the U.S. launched Explorer 1, our first successful satellite launch, which enabled James Van Allen to discover the Van Allen radiation belt. And in 1996, Japanese amateur astronomer Yuji Hyakutake discovered the comet that bears his name. More recently in This Week in Space History, on January 25, 2006, the discovery of the first cool, rocky, or icy extrasolar planet around a main-sequence star was announced. Three independent groups of observers found the planet, which is currently cataloged as Ogle 2005-BLG-390LB. That's a mouthful. Moving on, we have a few genre-related birthdays this week in history. In 1832, on the 27th of January, Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, was born. On January 26, 1918, science fiction grandmaster and multiple Hugo Award-winning author Philip Jose Farmer was born. And this week in 1941, on January 30th, multiple Nebula Award-winning author Gregory Benford was born. We wish him a very happy birthday. And to close out This Week in History, this week in 1845, the New York Evening Mirror published The Raven, the first publication under the name of Edgar Allan Poe. 
Speaking of publishing, in Bain News, we close out January with one last reminder of this month's mass market paperback releases. Tom Crapman's Come and Take Them, the fifth novel in the Carrera series, Reich Spores, Spheres of Influence, the sequel to Grand Central Arena, and The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs Anthology, edited by Mike Resnick and Robert Garcia. You can find them at booksellers everywhere. Hugo Award-winning and New York Times best-selling author Timothy Zahn brings hard science credibility to the fast-paced Cobra military science fiction series. After earning his bachelor's and master's degrees in physics, it took only a few years to sell his first story to analog science fiction and fact. He continued selling short fiction and won the 1984 Hugo Award for Best Novella with Cascade Point, which also appeared in Analog. The very next year, Bain published Cobra, and he completed the first Cobra trilogy in 1988. Fans had to wait two decades for the follow-on Cobra War trilogy, the first volume of which appeared in 2009. He has written other series, of course, the most famous of which has to be the Thrawn series of Star Wars novels, for which he has been called the man who saved Star Wars. Today we're talking about Cobra Outlaw, the second volume of the Cobra Rebellion series, coming out in February from Bain Books. Tim, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Hi, right, thanks. It's nice to be here. Tim, the idea of the super soldier or the enhanced soldier has been around for quite a while, but I'm curious as to what inspired you to create the Cobras. Cobra, uh, Johnny Moreau, the first uh, Cobra, was actually a novella, or maybe it's a novelette, back in analog, uh, back in the, if it be early, uh, early 80s. It was uh, a short story called When Johnny Comes Marching Home. And the impetus to that, for that was the idea of a soldier coming home with his weapons still implanted in his body, the, the way the Cobras were set up. It was sort of a riff on the Vietnam vet uh, returning and, uh, you know, multiple bad movies about vets going nuts and such when they get home, uh, which seldom if ever actually happened. But uh, the, the uh, fear and the concern of the citizens uh, was still there in that era. And I thought, what happens when a future soldier comes home? And again, they can't take all his weapons away. That was the impetus from there, the idea of implanting the weapons in the Cobras and why they have their weapons implanted grew from that. I did a follow-up story in analog. And then uh, I think Betsy Mitchell, who was working at Bain at the time, asked me to do a couple of novels. And that's where it all began. Now, that leads me to think of... PTSD, which seems to be much better understood now than it was at the time you were writing this, how much of the PTSD research have you looked into and tried to incorporate in your later COBRA work? I've looked at it a little bit. That's not really the direction I've been wanting to go. I mean, the, the, the main characters I've got... Well, actually, for most of the uh, 
the original trilogy, we had the first Cobras would have had a certain amount of that. But later on, we didn't have much actual combat until we got to the Cobra War series. Timeline-wise, that's only a couple of months before Cobra Rebellion trilogy kicks off. So it's not... Um, a lot of that will perhaps not have arisen yet. And again, that's not my focus, but it's something I may think about for this, this uh, final book in the series. Okay. Well, one of the things in Cobra Outlaw that seemed very realistic to me was the politics in the book. It seemed true to life, uh, but it didn't you know, saturate the book and it didn't... Uh, devolve into to polemic. One of the things I particularly liked was a line that says, uh, Barrington might not especially like political games, but he did know how to play them. And it reminded me of something that I've heard attributed to Heinlein, and that's uh, politics is the only game for adults. All the others are for kids. And I wondered if that was a little homage that you snuck in there. Uh, nothing directly. I read I read my my fair share of Heinlein growing up. Uh, I did not remember remember that quote, which doesn't mean necessarily didn't stick in my brain, just not on a conscious level. It's it's an interesting. I I don't particularly like playing politics myself, but I can write characters who do. A lot of that is going for power or influence or getting your way, and I'm just not very good at that sort of thing. I would also sort of disagree. I think chess is for adults, too, but I digress. (laughs) I do know some some people, uh, some writers who are quite good at the political game and uh, usually get them what they want, occasionally comes back and bites them on the butt. Uh, But that's, I guess, part part and parcel to that particular game. That's, That's part of the risk of it. That's true. Still on that topic, one of the things that I appreciated was an observation in the book that the ranchers and the foresters and the small town people had developed different outlooks on uh, the state of things than the city people had. The walls around the city might remind the city dwellers that there are dangers outside, but they don't face them every day the way the ranchers and the farmers do. Now, did, did you intend that as... Uh, any type of commentary on the difference that we see in our country today between the people in rural areas versus urban areas? Not, not as a specific, okay, let's put in modern-day America and this sort of thing. It's just well, one of the, the jobs of a writer, a science fiction writer in particular, is to do the consequence testing. Uh, if this situation exists, what are the consequences of it? And the way I've styled the Cobra world with spine leopards and such still roaming around, okay, what are the consequences? Well, the rural areas are going to see these things much more often than the city people will, and they will be more reliant on the Cobras than the city people will, and therefore their attitude toward them will be much different. So it's not a specific reference to America, it's more of a, this is how people react. They form their opinions and their thoughts and their judgments based on their lives and what is, uh, 
what is affecting their lives. Well, I think that you do a great job of showing that different people in different areas have different experiences that they bring to their current situations, and it affects their reactions. And I, I liked the fact that you show that in the aliens as well. For instance, the troft are not homogeneous the way we see a lot of aliens depicted uh, in other science fiction, but they have their own factions and competing interests, and those kinds of things come to play in the novel and in the series. Now, I wondered, did you have any, uh, again, going back to, to how we, we develop things, did you have any terrestrial examples in mind when you came up with the troughs and, and their take on the world? Nothing specific. Um, again, it's just a, we've got, the troughs live in a, a huge region of space and lots and lots of planets. The, the whole idea of anything too large being governed from a central location, it, it always gets a little impractical, whether it's, you know, sometimes I think our country is too big to really be governed properly from a central location. I think that's why the, the founders tried to limit the federal government and keep more of the power to the states, which has you know, slowly uh, changed over the centuries. And the idea that the troughs would have their own interests, their own rulers, just looking at the world around us, we see a lot of that happening. In fact, even in wartime, I've done a fair amount of reading about World War II, and the, the history books you read in school don't show how much squabbling there was between the, the factions and the allies on both sides. The Brits and the Americans got into tussles here and there. Uh, the American Navy and Army and Marines got into uh, political and you know, infighting right in the midst of a war. So it's, it's very human nature, and apparently it's cropped nature as well. And I think it's something that gives the book a, a realistic feel that, honestly, I have missed in other things that I've read and, and, and TV shows that I've watched and movies that I've seen that paint the alien adversary as if they are all of a type. And I think you do a great job of illustrating that, yes, these aliens are alien, but they have their own their own worlds and their own interests, and I just, I found that to be very refreshing. Okay. It, it also makes for a much more interesting story. Instead of the monolithic alien threat, you have all sorts of little factions who are working against each other, and, and we, our heroes, can sometimes play them against each other, sometimes are trying to figure out what the scorecard is going into this. Sometimes we're hopelessly lost. And have some more of that uh, infighting or at least maneuvering for position going on in the third book of the trilogy. Well, speaking of being hopelessly lost, again and again, as I read the book, I was reminded of Sunza's statement that all warfare is based on deception. And the way that you illustrated that in terms of 
a character is observing things, and the reader has been made privy to things the character doesn't know and wishes the character would know it and knows the character is about to go into danger or possibly make a mistake, but you remain true to the points of view that you've established, and it just came across very, very well. But as I thought about the art of war and military history kinds of things, it it really made me wonder, from your background as a physicist, having been very close, I think, to working on a doctorate or receiving a doctorate, that seems a little bit different world than the world of military history and that kind of thing. What What was your biggest influence in terms of coming to the military side of things as opposed to the science side of things? Again, um, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of understanding of human nature and how people deal with things and the mistakes and blind spots they've got. Uh, on the other hand, science isn't nearly as sterling and, you know, and noble and uh, always on the right path as, as people would like to, to think as well. Uh, there have been a lot of false starts through history of uh, going the wrong direction in science. There have been a lot of instances of the sponsors of science, whether they be corporations, governments, uh, you know, political entities, where they influence the results of the experiments. So, so science isn't uh, any more pure than politics is in many ways. Hopefully they're trying, the scientists are trying to find the truth, but there's a lot of confusion and personal gain stuff thrown in there as well, unfortunately. The military part, again, just a lot of reading, a lot of uh, historical stuff, uh, just understanding how people react and what their own motivations and goals might be, um, just gets woven into the whole fabric. Now, something you said there about the science and the different pressures that come to bear on scientists as they ply their trade, as it were. There's definitely some of that in this book where the the Troft are conducting some experiments in hopes of gaining a military advantage, and within the Trofts themselves, they are competing with one another over that. And I guess the question that comes to mind is, have you experienced that during the time that you were in the science world in terms of science for hire or even possibly scientific espionage or that sort of thing? No, nothing like that, personally. Uh, my project was one that nobody had any interest whatsoever in stealing, so I, I had no problem with <laughs> Yeah, it, for one thing, it wasn't working, and uh, there was a flaw in it that it never was going to work, which is why I never got my doctorate. But no, I, I didn't see any of that um, deliberate directly. I was kind of insulated. My advisor had just two students, and uh, we didn't interact that much. Our projects were very different, and I wasn't involved in any of the really cool stuff that might be uh, interesting to competing scientists or competing forces or whatever, you know, pick your favorite TV trope. So, no, I never saw any of that uh, directly. One of the things that interested me in the book 
was that these cobras don't know all of their capabilities. You know, so much time has passed since the cobra enhancements were first developed, and in some respects, they've gotten used to the things that they use all the time, and yet they are discovering that they have capabilities that they didn't know about. Now, presumably, you, as the author, know all of their capabilities, or is it possible that you are still developing the capabilities as you go along? Well, it would be nice to say I had it all down, but I really, just as I was working on the book, it suddenly occurred to me it's been 100 years since the war the Cobras were developed to fight. And the nanocomputer that has all these pre-programmed reflexes and such is basically the same one the original Cobras were given. It, it, the whole system was given to the Cobra world back before they were cut off and the rest of the dominion of man, uh, the human empire. And so, as you say, they will. there are certain ones they know about, certain ones they would use every day in the fighting the spine leopards and such. But there are others that probably their instructors at some point decide we don't need this, we won't teach how to get it. You know, access this reflex. And after that, the next generation of instructors didn't know it was there. Um, the, the, the sort of thing that gets lost because it doesn't get used, but it's still available. Or like your old hidden files in the computer thing. Well, I thought it made for some great moments in the book. And some other moments that I thought were great were actually moments of humor. For instance, I really liked... Paul's first impression of the room where the mind's eye device was that was going to be used on him, uh, where he's comparing it to stories he's read and thinking that it should be either dark and dim or, or brightly, clinically white, or the time when Merrick was going through the shipwreck and was comparing it with dramas that he had seen and each of those little moments came across to me uh, sort of as if you're sort of winking at the reader, and I really liked that. And I wondered, are those kinds of things easy for you to come up with, and you know, do you plan them out in advance, or do they sneak up on you while you're writing? Those things just sort of show up as I'm, as I'm writing the scene. Uh, again, this is our... Thinking of how people really think. We all have preconceptions. We all have, uh, you know, ideas of what we expect to see and what we expect other people to say. And yeah, those are those are nice moments when they show up. Uh, I did a, a three-part comic back in the '90s, uh, Star Lord, actually, speaking of you know, current events and such, and Guardians of the Galaxy. But there's a scene where the new guy who has taken over Star-Lord's uh, equipment because he had no choice is envisioning the mercenaries he's going to be coming up against. And the vision that he's got in the comic is, again, this nice, neat, uniformed, you know, enterprise-type bridge. And when he actually sees them, they're a bunch of scruffy guys with you know, just scruffy mercenary types. So again, that same sort of thing, our expectations, we have expectations that don't always, aren't always matched by the real world. And they can be 
interesting. It can be humorous. It can be uh, disappointing. But they all serve to give the novel, I think, a really nice feel of, of realism and of putting me in that situation because I can relate to having those same sorts of, of thoughts and feelings, and I thought it was very well done. Well, thank you. That's, that's exactly the purpose. They're supposed to, these are supposed to be real people, and you're supposed to, the reader is supposed to be able to identify with them and, yeah, I would react that way in that situation. Yes, I can see the conflict he's got between what he should do and what he really wants to do, et cetera. And that's, that's how you create memorable and identifiable character. Expectations being either met or dashed is just part of what makes a, a real person. Well, is there anything that I haven't thought to ask you that you just wish you had always been asked in an interview that you'd like to ask and answer yourself? Pass over the would you like some extra money uh, question, which is always one I like to be asked. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely not authorized to ask that question. Y- yes, I, I figured you wouldn't be. Uh, nothing in particular. I mean, the, the, the Cobras have been a fun project. I think I'm going to wind this series up with book nine, the, uh, the last one, Cobra Trader, at least for the moment. But, you know, it, it's it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. I read through Cobra Outlaw again, preparatory to writing Cobra Trader. And yeah, it holds together well. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased with it. And I really appreciate Tony and, and Bain Books giving me the chance to expand on the original three novels. Well, we're glad you did. Any idea what you will have on, uh, on the horizon after Cobra Trader? I have a half dozen ideas I still have to develop. Uh, I'm, of course, I'm going uh, going still with uh, my collaboration with David Weber in the uh, Manticore Ascendant series. I'm doing a rewrite of that, of the second book right now on that. I'm, I'm sure I will not be saying goodbye to Bane Books anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think we'd want that. How about personal appearances? Are you going to be going to any conventions through the spring that you'd like to tell people about where they can come find you? Let's see. February. It's on my uh, Facebook page, but a quick uh, run through uh, February's uh, 14th weekend of February 14th, Baltimore, 28th, Chattanooga, April 18th, Denver. Uh, 25th, Bangor, Maine, uh, May 23rd, Minneapolis, June 6th will be Origins in Columbus, Ohio, uh, July 4th, Indianapolis, July 11th, High Point, North Carolina, and September 12th in Nuremberg, Germany, October 10th in Tampa, Florida. So I've got a kind of a wide range at the moment. Very nice. If any of those are cities where, where your listeners are, they can uh, check my Facebook page. I've got a listing of which specific conventions those are going to be. I know that people can find out about you on Wikipedia and uh, even on Wikipedia, the Star Wars wiki. But is there anywhere else besides your Facebook page where fans can keep up with you? 
No Facebook page is really where I post everything new, uh, any new information, et cetera, books, uh, premieres, and things of that sort. I've thought about a web page, and actually I think Facebook gets the information out faster and more efficiently. So at the moment, I'm sticking with that. Well, I'm sure the Facebook people appreciate that. And no, I don't tweet. <laughs> okay. The other question, do I have a Twitter account? And I, I can't say anything in 140 characters or less. I'm just sorry, I can't do that. Well, that's okay. I'm sure everyone will forgive you that. Well, Tim, thank you very much for spending some time with us uh, on the podcast this week. And I, for one, look forward to seeing you over the summer when you come down here to uh, congregate in uh, High Point, North Carolina. And I'm sure our listeners will uh, be lining up to see you at your other uh, conventions through the year. Well, I hope so. That's, that's the point of going to conventions is to meet the fans and the readers. All right. Well, thanks very much, and uh, have a great day. And now, here is part 43 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free when you try Audible free for 30 days. Or you can choose from more than 100,000 other titles. But of course, we think you should pick Hard Magic and then check out its sequels. If you're just joining us, it's the 1930s in America, but not the America our history books describe. In the 1860s in this world, magical abilities manifested in a small number of people from all walks of life, and with each succeeding generation, more and more people have developed magical talents. They're called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but not all of them. Jake Sullivan is an active known as a heavy because he can control the force of gravity, a talent that has saved his life many times over the years. He's a former soldier, an ex-con, and now a private eye who was recruited into a secret organization of actives known as the Grimnoir Knights. The Knights are the good guys, and the rest of humanity needs their help because the evil forces of magic are about to unleash a magic-based apocalypse. Here is Brunson Pinchot with Part 43 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Chapter 19 It was during my wandering time that I first met an American. The black ships of Commodore Perry had recently arrived in Nippon. These foreign barbarians did not ask the shogun for permission to open trade. They demanded it from the decks of their warships while ringed in cannons under a cloud of coal smoke that blotted out the sky. There was an assumption of this absolute right, the strongest does not ask, cajole, or beg. It is the duty of the strongest to command and the weakest to obey. 
I had long made my way by selling my sword, and whatever lord I served inevitably became the strongest. So I was well acquainted with this concept at the individual level, yet it was the Americans that opened my eyes to the greater possibilities. As the strong lord must rule over the weak peasant, so must the strong nation rule the entire world. I owe them a great deal as I have tried to apply this lesson ever since. Baron Okubo Tokugawa, Chairman of the Imperial Council. My Story, 1922 280 Miles West of San Francisco Maddie sat cross-legged on the floor of his cabin attempting to meditate. He could feel the ship rocking. It had taken him forever to figure out how to sit like the other iron guards. He wasn't exactly a limber man, but he'd decided a long time ago that anything they could do, he'd do better. And now he could sit as still as a statue for hours. At the academy, old master Shiroyuki would come by and crack him on the spine with a bokken any time he started to slouch. The old bastard had been big on posture. Thinking of the old master made him smile. That was his problem with meditation. Thoughts just kept coming, and now he was remembering Shiroyuki and his big, ridiculous samurai mustache. He'd hated Maddie. Not only for being the first white man accepted into the brutal Iron Guard training, but also because he had come to Japan as a prisoner of war. He'd been part of AEF Siberia. The Polar Bears, they'd been called in the news. It had been a shitty mission to a cold, unforgiving place. Mostly to protect American business interests while the Bolsheviks were getting their asses handed to them by the Japs. He'd gotten separated from his unit when his chicken-shit commanding officer panicked and ran. It was an empty feeling, waiting at your post for relief that never came. It had taken three weeks on foot through the coldest damn forest in the world, but the Imperium troops had finally captured him, though he'd killed a whole mess of them in the process. They'd dragged him behind their horses for miles, but he'd refused to die. Then they tossed him into a deep, dark hole and quit feeding him, but he'd lived off of rats that he'd crushed with his power. One day a new commander showed up and had marveled at the one-eyed heavy chained in the hole. Apparently the weeks he'd spent evading and murdering them had earned him a reputation as some sort of great white freak show. He was the biggest man any of the Japs had ever seen, and he was the only American in the camp. So the new commander had logically decided it would be fun to watch him fight a bunch of the captured Russians for his amusement. That part had been fun. He'd never had any qualms about killing. It was really the only thing he was good at. The regular Russians were easy to beat. He could snap most of them in half. The Siberians were different. Those boys were tough, and he picked up a bunch of scars giving the Japs their show. Afterward, they'd put him back in the hole, only this time the commander had sent down food, honest to God, real food. It was mostly rice, but after eating raw rats, rice was good. That had gone on for another month, until Maddie had damn near depopulated the entire camp of other prisoners. When they'd run out of Russians, they'd tossed in some Chinese, five at a time, and when they ran out of those, they'd thrown him in the arena with an angry bear. The bear had been easy. A ten-second surge of power had turned it into mush. He'd tried to escape a couple of times, in fact. The first time they'd beaten him senseless with rifle butts, but the commander had told them to let him live. 
He was intrigued by the heavy at this point. The second attempt resulted in the death of nearly a dozen of the camp guards, and he'd gone down fully expecting to get his head chopped off, but instead he'd woken up chained back in the hole, the commander sitting on a stool across from him. Maddie could remember it like it was yesterday. The man studied him for a long time before speaking. The commander spoke English, even if he was damn near impossible to understand the way he tried to shout half the words. Why are you still alive, Heavy? Why are you not dead while everybody else dead? Maddie didn't need to think about that for very long. Because I was stronger. The commander had nodded real slow, like that was the wisest thing he'd ever heard. Then he had passed Maddie a dirty envelope. My men captured this. Inside was a typed letter on AEF stationery, and he even recognized his old captain's signature. The letter was real matter-of-fact, about how Sergeant Matthew D. Sullivan was AWOL and a no-good deserter and a coward. That had really left him steamed, since the only reason he was in this Jap prison was because his old captain had been yellow and run at the first sight of an advance. He'd been the one who'd left Maddie at his post to be overrun. Maddie had survived the second fucking sum. What did Captain Cocksucker know about cowardice? You read this? Maddie asked, disgusted. The Jap nodded. Liars. I've never run from nothing in my life. Your people dishonor you. Ain't the first time. Got my brother killed in France, tore half my face off, and they didn't even bother to fix it all the way. The women told him he was good-looking before the war, but now it didn't matter what they said to his torn-up face. He saw their disgust with his good eye. What did I get? Nothing, he'd spat. Jake had been the one who'd gotten all the fancy medals and the recognition and the praise after the war, but his little brother had never cared about that kind of thing. He sure had, but all he'd ever wanted was some respect, but they hadn't given him shit. Then when I get captured because of some yellow officer, they blame it on me. He threw the letter on the ground, planning on using it to wipe his ass later. You are great warrior, the commander stated. My men told stories of how hard to catch you it was in the forest, how you killed many men. You put fear in their hearts. It is hard to make Imperium man fear. You're strong. Strongest should be most respect. Hell with them. Maddie agreed, really studying the commander for the first time. He was tall for a Jap, otherwise nothing special to look at, but he emanated a quiet confidence. Maddie could tell he was some sort of active by the way he carried himself. Yes. You think you're strongest? Prove it. Make pact. We fight. You beat me. You free go. He'd had a good laugh. No shit. Shit not... I am Rocco Saburo of Iron God. You beat me, you're free. I beat you, you serve me. He figured that the Jap would last even less time than the bear in the blood-soaked little field they'd made him fight all those Russians in, and the next morning they'd led him out there. The whole Jap battalion had shown up and was standing in a big circle watching, excited. They had bayonets mounted, and he was no sucker. When he won over the crazy little man, they were sure as hell going to stick those long bayonets in him, no matter what, but maybe he'd get to squish a nip officer in the process. Rokusaburo had been waiting in the middle, shirtless, his body covered with strange, intricate scars. He bowed. The little man destroyed him. 
Afterward, when he'd regained consciousness, Rokusaburo had come to him again. What were all those burns on you? Kanji, to grant me more power, Iron Guard unbeatable, Iron Guard strongest of all. Then I want to be an Iron Guard, Maddie told him. To his credit, Rokusaburo didn't laugh. He'd only given him that same slow nod, and Maddie's education had begun. Back in the present, Maddie's nose itched, but he decided not to scratch it. It was probably from that damn incense that was stinging up the ship's cabin. He might be lousy at meditation because he couldn't stop thinking, but he could control his body. What had gotten him thinking? Oh yeah, that asshole old Master Shiryuki. Rokusaburo had gotten him into the academy. Maddie had forsaken his country, his old ways, and sworn allegiance to the Imperium, but he'd felt no loss. He felt no loyalty. All his homeland had ever given him was pain and betrayal. They'd used him, hurt him, killed the only decent folks he knew, then called him yellow and left him to rot. The Imperium at least appreciated strength. Shirayuki had been hard on him. The old bastard had taught him and tried to have the other students kill him. He was always extra hard on the big white one. While the chairman preached that he didn't care where an active was born, Shirayuki was old school, real proud that he came from the same ancient samurai family as the chairman himself, and hated the round eyes. He'd tried to break Maddie every step of the way. The fact that Maddie never quit and was strong enough to just keep accepting kanji infuriated Shirayuki. To bind with a new mark, you had to go right up to death's door, and each one you got, the harder it was to come back. The other students began to respect him at five, and then fear him at eight. The chairman took a personal interest in Maddie's education, realizing how valuable it would be to have an operative able to move seamlessly in America. Plus, he was a sort of vindication of the chairman's beliefs of his vision for a perfect world ruled by the strong and the wise. The chairman had taken him under his wing, showing him the dark secrets, the truth of the power. Maddie did not just follow. He believed. Then old man Shirayuki had dared to publicly disagree with the chairman, saying that only the superior Nipponese should be iron guard, the chairman had replied with his usual wisdom that the power lived inside their bodies where all blood and bone was the same color. Shirayuki had been chastened, dishonored, and when he was no longer in favor, Maddie struck. He'd waited until he had received his tenth kanji before challenging the old master to a trial by combat. He had been honor-bound to accept. He'd ripped Shirayuki apart like he'd been one of the Russian prisoners in Rokusaburo's camp. The memory of the old man's arms coming off in twin fountains of blood and the samurai screaming through that ridiculous mustache made him grin. He opened his eyes. Hell with it. The chairman was a big fan of meditation, but reaching inner peace wasn't exactly his thing. The chairman taught that with proper clarity you could actually converse with the power. Maddie didn't know about that, but if the chairman said that's how it was, then that's how it was. Unlike the people he'd sworn allegiance to before, the chairman never lied. There was movement in his bunk. Toshika was awake, watching him. 
she'd pulled the sheet up to cover herself, feigning modesty. The shadow guard was such a tease, but damn if her academy hadn't taught her in all the arts of espionage. He could barely feel anything anymore, but he had felt that. He realized she'd been counting his scars. How many kanji have you taken? Thirteen. He rose, retrieved his shirt, and threw it on. He still ached from all the wounds the Grimmies had inflicted on him, but that healer bitch had done as she'd been told and fixed him up, and he'd only had to smack her in the face a few times to get his point across. More than any other man in the world. She either really was impressed or she faked it good. He never could tell with a shadow guard. They were such trained chameleons that you never could tell where the real person began and the act ended. They were spies and assassins that could be whatever you wanted them to be. Even more than the chairman? He snorted and buttoned up his shirt. The chairman don't need no marks on him. He just goes right up to the power and takes whatever he wants. Us mortals need the kanji just to keep up. He knew it was true. The chairman was the greatest of all. He wasn't just strong, he was smart, too. He even painted and wrote poetry that Maddie didn't really get, but all the other Iron Guard always kissed the chairman's ass and told him how great it was. If the chairman wrote a haiku, you could damn well better believe it was the best haiku ever. Toshiko dropped the sheet. I bear five. Her kanji were much smaller, more discreet, almost graceful. The Shinobi Academy Magi were artists compared to the Unit 731 butchers with their glowing red-hot branding irons. She fingered each one reverently. Hearing. Stealth. Strength. Sight. Vitality. Yep, I see him. Not that he was looking at her scars as he shrugged into his shoulder holster. Get dressed, our ride will be here soon. I'll grab the prisoner. You really believe that soft thing will be of use? Maddie shrugged. We'll take her to Nippon, break her and rebuild her. If she sees the light, then sure. An old iron guard had been patient and shown him the true way once, and he owed Rokusoburo his life for it. Too bad his blood brother had killed his spirit brother, but he'd already balanced those scales. I figure I'm doing her a favor. Toshiko sneered. And if she does not see it that way? There were schools all over the Empire for training actives, and not just for volunteers either. The chairman's instructors had ways of making people catch the vision. Those deemed unfit were used in the experiments. Then she goes to Unit 731. Throw her overboard and let the sharks take her, she suggested. It would be more merciful. Maddie slid down the ladder into the hold of the ship. His boots hit the steel grate and he started down the corridor. He had to duck to keep from hitting his head on the pipes. The crew averted their eyes and got out of his way. They were loyal Imperium subjects, and they knew not to keep an iron guard from his business. They'd boarded the cargo ship and made it out of the harbor before the authorities had locked down the coast. Officially, they flew the flag of the free city of Shanghai, but this was the same vessel that had brought in his reinforcements. Shanghai was only free as long as it was convenient for the chairman for it to stay that way. The emergency radio broadcasts that morning had been priceless. His ruse had worked. 
Word had already leaked to the press about the anarchist propaganda scattered at the Peace Ray. All the known commie-backed agitators were getting rousted as the real culprits sailed away. They were going to be picked up by an imperial airship and rushed home. And by the time he'd be soaking his feet in Edo, the American actives would be feeling the heat. If he was really lucky, there would be a crackdown. Anything that caused dissension in the enemy's ranks would only swell the Imperium's own. The corridor stunk of diesel and body odor. The paint was peeling and the tub rusting, which normally would be unacceptable in an Imperium vessel, but this one had to keep up appearances as being a low-class merchanter. Matty found the door and spun the wheel. It creaked violently as he pulled it open. The healer was on the floor. She closed her eyes as blinding light spilled into the tiny cell. She was pathetic, filthy, her clothes ripped, her wrists bound behind her back with cord. I wonder if this was how Rokusaburo saw me. Probably not, because he had at least been tough. This grim noir girl was soft, and the only reason he'd thought to bring her along was the sheer rarity of healers. Get up, he ordered. She whimpered, so he kicked her in the leg. Not hard enough to hurt, but hard enough to let her know he was serious. Get your ass up, or you'll really feel the boot. He reached down, grabbed her by the arm, and jerked her off the floor. I got a flight to catch. Where are you taking me? She asked, grimacing against the pain. He thought about backhanding her, but it was a fair question. Nippon, from there you'll go wherever the chairman thinks is best. She limped along as he pulled her into the corridor. If you're lucky, you'll stay at an Edo school to serve. If you piss us off, you're going to Manchukuo. Trust me, sister, you don't want that. You're too pretty, and those mutants are awful lonely. There still was defiance in her eyes. He could see her thinking about how she would never serve the Imperium, but she was smart enough not to say it out loud. Fine, we'll see how tough you are when the branding iron comes out, he said as he dragged her along. Toshiko, Hiroyasu, and the others were waiting for them on the deck. The sea air felt cool on his skin. In the distance to the east, a black shape was growing. It was the chairman's new flagship, fresh off the UBF assembly line, heading home for the first time, the most advanced hybrid dirigible ever developed, and the chairman had it diverted to pick up his star iron guard so that he could return home in honor. It's beautiful, Toshiko muttered. It really was. Matty was no expert on airships, but he'd ridden on one of the new Kagas, which were more like battleships suspended under three armored hulls, all business. This was nowhere near as big, but it was much sleeker. The flagship was like something off the cover of those science fiction pulps. It also had three separate hulls, like long gray cigars, but the outer two were angled inward at the front, and the whole thing was covered in a housing of rooms, balconies, and glass enclosures, giving it an overall triangular shape. It was driven by twenty roaring engines, both lifted and fueled by hydrogen, and it would be crewed entirely by actives. The Imperium had not developed its airship technology as rapidly as the Americans, and when Maddie had heard that their new flagship would be built by UBF, he'd been offended. But those thoughts were forgotten as he saw the gleaming beast coming toward them. Their cogs would catch up. 
They'd even improved on UBF's original Kaga design by adding hydrogen-powered peace rays. It was only a matter of time until the Imperium was able to produce marvels like this at home, but in the meantime, the chairman would ride in style. Da Nippon, Daikoku Kagun Tokugawa. It is called the Tokugawa in honor of the chairman's family name, Hiroyasu said reverently. I thought you didn't name a ship after somebody until after they died, the grim noir healer said. Maybe we'll get lucky. Toshiko slapped her to the deck for her insolence. He's immortal, Maddie said. We didn't feel like waiting around. The four-engine amphibious PBY Silverado biplane had flown west until the Presidio, then San Francisco, then finally the blackened coast had been lost. Sullivan watched out the rear window of the cargo plane until the final line of land disappeared then moved forward to take his seat amongst the cargo headed for Pearl Harbor. The Silverado would normally have an eight-man crew, but none of the guns were mounted, so there were only four. The pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and engineer, and all of them had been specifically instructed by Major Arnold not to talk to the large man in civilian clothes. There were a few other passengers, soldiers being transferred to Hawaii, and they hadn't gotten the message. Where are you headed? the private sitting across from him asked, having to shout over the thunder of the props. There were two soldiers. They had to be fresh out of training. Had he been that young once? He had lied about his age and volunteered for the first when he was seventeen years old, so it was sad to say that he probably had. Nowhere you need to know about, Sullivan answered in a tone that suggested he just wanted to be left alone. He went back to looking out the port window and the soldiers returned to their conversation. Pershing's memory had directed him to a man at the Presidio. The base had been on alert, and soldiers had been scrambling. The men at the gate had regarded Sullivan. Dirty, coated in dried blood, clothing in shreds, with suspicion glaring at him over the muzzle of a Colt potato digger machine gun that had been thrown down behind a bunch of sandbags. He was glad that he'd detached the barrel from the 29 bar and stashed it in his bag, or they probably would have shot him. When he said that he had a message for a Major Arnold, they had sent a runner. The Major had taken him aside as soon as he said that Black Jack Pershing had sent him. Sullivan had repeated exactly the code words that had been left in his head. It's time to see the pirate. How's the weather? the Major had asked in return. Getting hotter, Sullivan had responded as instructed. That's why we need the weatherman. The major's expression had turned grim, but he had immediately given him a place to clean up and had sent someone to fetch him some food and a change of clothing. Thirty minutes later he'd showered, sucked down some bacon and eggs along with a pot of coffee and reported back to Arnold, who was busy coordinating men and supplies to the damaged area around Mar Pacifica. When they were alone, the Major had locked the door of his office and bid Sullivan to take a seat. I don't know what this is about, but I promised an old friend that if this day came, I'd help. I've got a Silverado leaving for Hawaii in twenty minutes. You'll be on it. He reached into his desk and pulled out an envelope that had been sealed with wax. I'll instruct the Silverado to follow these orders. 
but they will not help you in any way other than to take you to your destination as part of a training mission. They will not cross into Imperial territory. They're a good crew, and they'll keep their mouths shut. I assume you know what to do next. Yes, sir, he answered, taking the envelope. Good, because I don't. The general could be a cryptic man at times. I'm assuming this has something to do with the peace ray. Yes, sir. Sullivan had picked up a morning paper on the way here and read the lies. Only it wasn't no anarchist like they're saying. It was the Imperium. That's not my area, mister. I don't decide who to bomb. They just tell me where to drop them. But off the record, I'd say you're probably right. The anarchists they're laying this on couldn't find their own ass in the dark. I've been pressing to deal with those Imperials for a long time. But there were too many politicians making too much money off them for that to happen. Sullivan nodded. That's why Pershing had given this man a piece of the puzzle. What's going to happen? Nobody wants another war, the Major said. I'm afraid people will believe whatever they want. I think they're fools. War's coming, no matter what we say. All I can do is make sure my little corner of this machine is ready to fight. There was a knock on the door. Now, if you'll excuse me, Mr. Man, whose name I probably don't want to know, duty calls. Sullivan had returned his salute smartly. Duty calls. The view out the window of the Silverado was breathtaking, but his thoughts were elsewhere. Huge fuel tanks hung pendulous between the wings. Pontoons even larger were below that. The ocean was dark blue as far as the eye could see. A dark shape came into slow focus as they drew near. It was an airship and one of the biggest he'd ever seen. It was so far away that it was hard to make out details. What is that thing? One of the soldiers asked. That? I read about that in the paper yesterday. That's the Imperium's new super airship. That Stuyvesant made a pretty penny off that pig, I'd bet, the other answered smartly. It's heading from Michigan out to Japan. I read the whole article. Sullivan watched the huge craft in the distance. His scalp prickled at the sight of the rising sun painted large on the outer hulls. These were the bastards who'd robbed him of Delilah. Not the same bastards, but they worked for the same madman. Not that being angry did him a lick of good. The Silverado was unarmed, and that monster sure as hell wouldn't be. Major Arnold's men weren't about to start an international incident just because he was in a foul mood. The biplane was parallel to the distant dirigible, but they were easily passing it, and he realized that it was stationary. There was a glint of light reflecting off something metallic below it, and it took him a moment to realize that they were hovering over a ship. The chairman's airship dwarfed the tiny vessel. Why were they tethered to a cargo ship? Airships had to gas up, same as anything else, but why do it at sea when they just passed over land? Soldier, that article say if it ran off diesel... No, sirree, that thing's engines run off the hydrogen in its bags. UBF says it could fly nonstop all the way around the whole world if the wind was right. The crew has like a dozen torches to watch for fire and its own weathermen, and what else could they be picking up from a ship off the coast of San Francisco? That was brazen even for his brother. There might not be anything he could do about it, but maybe somebody else could. 
Sullivan stood and lurched into the aisle. He caught the engineer midway up the cabin and grabbed the airman on the shoulder. I need to use your radio. San Francisco, California. Faye was swept up in the confusion as much as everyone else. Reporters had tried to take their picture when they got to the hospital, but Lance had swept her under his arm and gotten her inside with his wide-brimmed hat pulled down low over his face. Last thing we need is for people who think we're dead to know we're not, he'd muttered. As Francis had gone by, the cameras had mysteriously broken and they'd retreated from the cursing reporters. The hospital had been packed with injured. Several local churches had been pressed into service for the less serious burns, and she heard that medical people were being brought in from all over the country. Heinrich told her that someone named Dr. Rosenstein was flying in from Chicago and that he'd personally see to Mr. Browning if they couldn't find a healer. The regular doctors had taken Mr. Browning away as soon as they arrived. Mr. Garrett had been taken to surgery. Lance had yelled at them about something until they agreed to not sedate him while they tried to tend to his injuries. He also refused to part with his six-gun. If the police talk to you, you were a guest at Francis's house. Don't say nothing else. I'll see to her, Mr. Talon, Isaiah assured him. Please go get yourself tended to. Please, Faye, have a seat. That was part 43 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. That's it for this installment of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Thanks to Timothy Zahn, author of Cobra Outlaw, one of our February releases. I'm Gray Reinhardt, contributing editor for Bain Books, and it's been my pleasure to be your host for this episode of the podcast. Please join us next time for the Bain Free Radio Hour, or join us anytime on Bain.com, where the heart of science fiction and fantasy beats strong.